Now that we've finished discussing Descartes, our first modern philosopher, it's time to turn our attention to sort of the end of modern philosophy, um, and specifically the work of David Hume. Um, unlike Descartes, Hume is very much coming at the end of this philosophical period, and while we have missed quite a few writers, you'll notice that there are a lot of similarities between Descartes and Hume, and Hume is in fact talking like to Descartes at multiple points in both the dialogues concerning natural religion and his other works. Um, you would probably expect me to give you a long, involved discussion of the history that has transpired between these two writers, but really there's not a whole heck of a lot to say on this one. Um, unlike Descartes and Aquinas, who are separated by like the giant gulf that is the Renaissance and the change between the medieval outlook and the modern outlook, unlike Aquinas and Plato, who are separated by a thousand years of wild changes in history and philosophy, um, Hume is separated from Descartes by a measly hundred years. And the major change that has occurred in this point is basically just a greater amount of what we've already talked about. Um, science has continued, like the scientific revolution has in a very real sense concluded, or at least is concluding, as Hume is writing. Um, so you'll notice that Hume comfortably talks about Copernicus and Galileo without any fear of reprisal, without worrying that he's going to like become imprisoned. Um, part of that is because Hume is a Scottish philosopher. He is actually the only philosopher we have read in class so far who has been, who is, you know, we're reading in the original language. Um, the English we find in our textbook is the exact same English that Hume wrote in, which actually makes him kind of difficult to read because it's, you know, 18th century English rather than contemporary 20th century English like most of our other works have been translated into. Um, at the same token, though, like, there has been a lot of changes, just changes in the same direction. Um, following Descartes and his writings about Galileo, um, or his writings that sort of like buttress Galileo's fight with the church and his attempt to sort of like skew Catholicism into seeing the value and the compatibility of science, um, Hume's not worried about it because he's a Protestant, so screw the Catholics. Like, who cares what they think? Um, England has had a tumultuous hundred years. Um, the 17th century for the English and for that matter the Scottish has been basically a story of revolution after revolution after revolution. Um, and they have gone from a powerful monarchy descended from many, many generations through the original line of English kings to basically them throwing out their king and just importing a new one from Denmark or from the Netherlands just because they felt like it. Um, this was very much brought about with the help of philosopher John Locke, um, who you've probably heard about. He is one of the major philosophers who influenced the founders of the Constitution, um, like Thomas Jefferson, George Washington, uh, James Madison. They all read John Locke thoroughly. His tabula rasa idea is kind of the foundation of American democracy. Um, but in the process of all of this like upheaval, um, Britain and England and Scotland have basically gone all in on Protestantism on the one hand and science on the other. Um, the, the other of our great creators of the scientific method, Francis Bacon, was a British guy. So he is also like in the lineage of what we are seeing here with Hume. Um, what we are, what we need to sort of 
note about Hume, though, is that he is kind of taking the opposite extreme. Um, where Descartes was being extremely cautious and trying to sort of preserve the historical medieval philosophy while also sort of like nudging it forward into, you know, scientific awareness and understanding, Hume basically just chucks out um, everything that has come before. Like, he will talk about it. Demia is in uh, this dialogue is fairly representative of like the old medieval tradition. Um, but for the most part, Hume does not even feel terribly obliged to address it. Um, like, Demia is almost a joke in this dialogue. He, he very much falls into the traps that Philo and Cleanthes set for him, um, as we'll talk about in a moment. Um, but on the other sort of like, the other end of this, Descartes and Hume form these two sort of extreme poles of modern philosophy. Um, and modern philosophers throughout this period sort of divide into these two camps. On the one hand, you have philosophers known as rationalists, philosophers who believe in the power of reason to sort of, um, like, explain and understand the world around us. So you'll notice that Descartes, like, his first step in the meditations is to distrust experience, to reject the knowledge that he gets from his senses. Um, his first revelations, the first things that he learns, that he knows without a shadow of the doubt, are brought about through reason alone. Reason a priori, as Hume would call it, um, which is just the fancy Latin term for prior to experience. Um, and Descartes believes that he can get knowledge prior to experience. When he says, I think, therefore I am, what he is essentially saying is, I do not need to rely on my senses to know that I exist, and if I exist, then I can make all sorts of other conclusions about the world that also do not rely up upon my senses, such as that God exists, such as that 2 plus 2 equals 4, um, such as that my senses are generally trustworthy, but notice that their trustworthiness is predicated on the existence of God, the existence of myself, and the arguments of my reason, my rationality. For Descartes, rationality comes before experience, prior to. For Hume, it's exactly the other way around. Um, in general, this divide sort of occurred between the continental Europe, like France and uh, Portugal and like other largely influenced by Catholic thought uh, nations at this time, whereas the empiricists, of whom Hume is kind of the last great British empiricist, primarily hang out in Britain and are primarily concerned with experience before rationality. Um, that name empiricists refers to empirical data, data that is gained through the senses. Um, and as a result, their rationality is frequently referred to in this text and elsewhere as a posteriori or after experience. Um, so this is the divide that you will see in modern philosophy. Descartes and the rationalists believe that reason predates experience, that like you can get knowledge without experience before experience. And then you have Locke, Berkeley, and Hume, on the other hand, who are empiricists. They argue that all reason depends on experience. You cannot have knowledge before experience. Um, experience is the fundamental unit by which knowledge is gained. 
But Hume, if anything, pushes empiricism a step further than it would usually go. Um, where Locke and where Hobbes and where Berkeley are all very invested in sort of experience as the foundation of all knowledge, um, but then presume to say that like there's all this knowledge that we can get from experience, knowledge like extension and knowledge about objects and knowledge about the world around us. Hume backs off of that position. As much as Hume is an empiricist, he is self-characterized as a skeptic, um, which is a word that has that doesn't have a whole heck of a lot of popularity in Hume's time, and hasn't for some time. Like, Descartes calls himself a skeptic, and a radical skeptic at that, and Hume... Hume thinks that Descartes a bullshit skeptic. Um, in fact, like, this whole discussion in part one of the dialogues concerning natural religion, as, like, Cleanthes is accusing Philo of being a skeptic, and Philo is sort of defending himself, in the wings you can kind of hear Hume differentiating between the skepticism of Descartes on the one hand and the skepticism of Philo on the other. Um, but we need to back up before we can get to that. Um... What's important for our purposes is that Hume called himself a skeptic within the framework of being an empiricist. Hume is arguing that all knowledge is in fact based on experience, um, but as a result, skepticism also needs to be predicated on experience. Unlike Descartes, who starts with the position that the senses are not trustworthy, Hume is basically saying that the senses are the only thing that are trustworthy. Or if there is some other source of knowledge, then it is not something we have access to. Um, the senses have to be trustworthy, because if we doubt the senses, literally everything else falls apart, as you'll see here. Um, but... Like I said, we're sort of running ahead of ourselves. First, we need to talk about the three characters in this particular dialogue. And you'll notice that Hume does, in fact, write a dialogue here. And he actually presents a fairly decent argument for why he is presenting a dialogue here. Um, so you'll notice in the, the prologue, Pamphilius to Hermippus, um, Pamphilus is our narrator for the duration of this dialogue. Like, he is the one recording this conversation between Demia, Cleanthes, and Philo. Um, and he notes that, like, dialogues are very much out of fashion. Nobody has been writing dialogues for a long time. Like, you can see the occasional dialogue in medieval philosophy. Um, you can argue that the sort of question-and-answer approach that Aquinas is using, or that was sort of, like, pioneered by Abelard in Yes and No, and later by the in the sentences, um, that this is kind of dialogue-ish. Like, you can certainly make that argument that, like, all of Aquinas' attention to the objections and the reply to objections basically mean that he's, like, modifying the form of the dialogue. Um, but ever since modern philosophy has been gaining speed, the dialogue is very out of fashion. Malbranche doesn't use a dialogue. Um, like, Descartes doesn't use a dialogue. Spinoza uses a very weird form that is definitely not a dialogue. Neither Locke nor Hobbes nor Berkeley are using dialogues. Like, all of these philosophers have kind of given up on the form. But Hume resurrects it for his purposes. And what he points out is that there are two things that make dialogues especially useful. First, if the thing that we're talking about is so obvious and also important that it would, like... 
it would require a fancy method of handling it, something that like everybody knows and is so incredibly important that everybody talks about it. The novelty of the dialogue might bring something interesting to the conversation. But on the other hand, if it is something so obscure and uncertain that human reason cannot easily find like a determination for it, if like we have been asking these questions for so long and gotten no answers, well then a dialogue is really good there too because it means that all of the interlocutors don't have to just become like puppets. Um, you can have three different characters with three different viable positions and they can discuss with one another and none of them look like an absolute fool. Um, there are different positions to be held in short and no one will be like triumphant or more obvious than any of the others. So with that in mind, the three characters that we are presented here by Hume in part one and elsewhere um, sort of represent these three radically different philosophical positions sort of colliding into each other to have this conversation. Um, and the first one that we should definitely pay attention to is Philo. Um, Philo is going to have all the best lines in this text. He is going to be do pushing the dialogue forward. Um, he is as close to Socrates as we are going to get in this particular dialogue, but you'll notice that he doesn't spend all of the time talking. Like, Cleanthes also gets a lot of rebuttals, Demia gets his fair share of time. Um, it's not a case of, like, Philo just saying, well, what about this? And then Euthyphro saying, you know, yes, Socrates, yes, Socrates. Like, it's much more complicated than this, much more sophisticated. Um... Which is not to say that Plato is not sophisticated, just Plato's sort of layering his sophistication in different ways. Um, the characters in Plato are kind of just stand-ins for Socrates to develop his ideas. The characters in Hume are actually legitimate characters, each with their own opinions, each with their own ideas. And Philo is usually understood to be the closest in ideas to Hume himself. Um, as much as Pamphilus is our narrator, and as much as his conclusions are going to sort of run counter to this, um, Philo absolutely represents a lot of what Hume writes in other dialogues. He, like Hume, calls himself a skeptic. He, like Hume, stands on scientific observation and analysis. He, like Hume, champions Galileo and Copernicus as like paradigmatic scientists of the age. He, like Hume, refuses to accept knowledge until it has been proven beyond the shadow of a doubt, and he, like Hume, very much emphasizes, especially when talking about God, the distance rather than the similarity between our understanding and the nature of God. Um, but we'll get to that as well. Um, and you'll notice that he is sort of accused of skepticism, as though skepticism isn't an appropriate way of going about his business here in part one. Um, Cleanthes is especially suspicious of Philo's skepticism, um, to the point that, like, on page 929, Cleanthes has this whole paragraph where he says, You propose, then, Philo, to erect religious faith on philosophical skepticism, and you think that, if certainty or evidence be expelled from every other subject of inquiry, it will all retire to these theological doctrines, and there acquire a superior force and authority. Whether your skepticism be as absolute and sincere as you pretend, we shall learn by and by when the company breaks up. We shall then see whether you go out at the door or the window, and whether you really doubt if your body has gravity or can be injured by its fall, according to popular opinion derived from our fallacious senses and more fallacious experience. Notice that Cleanthes does not respect this skepticism. 
Um, but notice that Cleanthes is also jumping to the conclusion that when Philo says he is a skeptic, he's talking about Descartes. Um, Cleanthes emphasizes how impractical skepticism actually is. That, like, a true skeptic wouldn't go out a door, they would go out a window, because they don't believe that gravity could hurt them. A true skeptic doesn't eat food, because they don't see the benefit of nutrition. A true skeptic does not go to the bathroom, because why would these impulses be trustworthy? Um, and obviously, no proper philosopher, much less any human being whatsoever, can live by these principles. Cleanthes emphasizes elsewhere that, kind of like the Stoics, the skeptics are arguing that you can retain this skeptical attitude, this rejection of untrustworthy knowledge across the board, um, that you can perpetually uh, like suspend your judgment the way that Descartes seems to encourage us to do so. Um, but this is not exactly what Philo is getting at here. Um, it's important to note that like Philo is kind of un is unlike Descartes in a lot of ways. And we'll see how that plays out a little while later. Um, but you'll notice that, like, Cleanthes jumps to these conclusions about Philo and his skepticism. He's the one who argues on page 931, um, I observe with regard to you, Philo, and all speculative skeptics, that your doctrine and practice are as much at variance in the most abstruse points of theory as in the conduct of common life. That Philo rejects generally accepted truths about the world while strangely accepting, like, wild conclusions about space and astronomy like those that Galileo and Copernicus are putting forward. Um, as Cleanthes sums it up at the bottom of page, of column two on page 931, your own conduct in every circumstance refutes your principles and shows the firmest reliance on all the received maxims of science, morals, prudence, and behavior. He then rather viciously argues, um, who says, I shall never assent to so harsh an opinion as that of a celebrated writer who says that the skeptics are not a sect of philosophers, they're only a sect of liars. I may, however, affirm, I hope without offense, that they are a sect of jesters or railers. In short, they are entertainers, not real philosophers. They write these fancy little, you know, treatises that spur the imagination, but they don't really have anything valuable to say. They're not liars, but they're basically, like, entertainers. They are the equivalent of the comedians of the philosophical world, and really don't have any, like, serious conclusions to make. And Philo pushes back against this just a little bit. Um, not a whole heck of a lot here, but we'll see him push back against it later. Um, and the emphasis that Philo is making is that even though skepticism is associated with, like, Cartesian skepticism, skepticism of the senses, suspicion of everyday truths, Philo is interested in something that would probably be better characterized as scientific skepticism. Um, as I stressed, Hume does not doubt the senses. The senses are the basis of all that we know. Doubting the senses are there, is therefore completely self-destructive. If you do not have the senses, then you can get no knowledge. And if you can't get knowledge, then what's the point of philosophy? Um, Hume and Philo, by extension, trust the senses not because they believe that they're 100% reliable and that like, they are never you know, fooled, uh, but rather out of pure necessity. They have nothing else to go on. Um, and this is kind of his argument as far as science goes. 
Um, science trusts the senses as well, because again, there's nothing else to go on here. Um, there is no power of a priori rationality. I think therefore I am will not get you any farther than I think therefore I am. Um, elsewhere, Hume argues that Descartes' jump from I think therefore I am to God exists is completely fallacious and requires a huge leap of reasoning, as you probably thought yourselves when we were reading through Descartes' uh, meditations. Um, so keep in mind that the idea of what skepticism actually looks like is one of the things that Hume is sort of grappling with in this dialogue. Um, and Philo, as the skeptic, has yet to sort of reveal his true colors and show what skepticism actually is. Um, but keep an eye out for that and watch the way that Philo sort of proposes arguments and in fact performs skepticism. Um, but with that in mind, let's change our opinion and look at um, Demia, because Cleanthes frequently lumps Philo and Demia together, and Philo and Demia seem to be allies at this particular point in time. Um, Demia, rather than being like in a adherent to science and an adherent to skepticism is instead very much a like orthodox theologian um, for our purposes. Um, you'll notice that he also shows a certain amount of skepticism, especially when it comes to talking about God, which for Demia is like way bigger than human beings and incomprehensible to us, um, much as Aquinas would have argued when it comes to like John Damascene. Um, Demia is very much in that camp that believes that God's attributes cannot be described or spoken, um, that God can only be known negatively, what God is not. So Demia is frequently insisting that like God's ways are different from our ways, um, that God is unknowable, that his characteristics are beyond our comprehension, that what we call wisdom is only like in a very sort of distant way, actually wisdom, the way that we understand the term. Um, and we should recognize in Demia's thinking some hints of Aquinas, but also some things that Aquinas would like reject. Um, Demia is more unfiltered Augustine or unfiltered John Damascene. Um, the philosophers that predated Aquinas, um, philosophers like Anselm with his ontological arguments springing directly from reason itself. Aquinas's arguments about God that come at the end of the day from experience are very much foreign um, to Demia. And Demia is not a Thomist. Demia is sort of a pre-Thomist in that sense. He is a blast from the past, in short. Like, Hume definitely portrays him here as though he's, you know, a typical theologian dating back, like, 300 years whose opinions have not changed since, you know, the Catholic Church was riding high um, and the papacy was the single most powerful entity in Europe. Um, like, we're going to see a number of comparisons there. Um, but what brings Demia and Philo together is their agreement that God is unknowable. Demia, because God is to be revered, something great, something incomprehensible, what God, what the Bible presents as like beyond our knowledge, beyond our understanding, his ways are not our ways. By contrast, Philo is making virtually the same argument, from, but from the perspective of science. Since we cannot observe God, we cannot make conclusions about who God is. 
Cleanthes stands between the two, and it is, at least at this point in the dialogue, opposed to both of them. Cleanthes is actually way closer to, to Aquinas at his most, like, empirical. Um, and Cleanthes is a straight-up philosophical empiricist in the line of Locke or Hobbes or the other British empiricists of the day. Um, where Demia definitely follows in the Cartesian school of using reason to get to God rather than experience, and Philo is very much in Hume's own little skeptical corner, um, Cleanthes more represents the philosophers that Hume would have dealt with at the time. Um, people who saw a union of rationality and science as being the solution to most philosophical problems. Um, so Cleanthes is suspicious both of Demia on the one hand for his abstruse theologizing and suspicious of Philo on the other for a skepticism that doesn't seem to yield any practical results. And you'll notice that it's Cleanthes who, get, who is making the central argument in this text. Um, now, the question that we're facing here is what is the nature of God? Um, notice not whether or not God exists. That is basically granted as far as Demia is concerned when he presents the question on page 933 at the beginning of part two. Um, so Demia says, I must own, Cleanthes, that nothing can more surprise me than the light in which you have all long put this argument. By the whole tenor of your discourse, one would imagine that you were maintaining the being of a god against the cavils of atheists and infidels, and were necessitated to become a champion for that fundamental principle of all religion. But this, I hope, is not by any means a question among us. No man... No man, at least of common sense, I am persuaded, ever entertained a serious doubt with regard to a truth so certain and self-evident. The question is not concerning the being, but the nature of God. This I affirm from the infirmities of human understanding to be altogether incomprehensible and unknown to us. The essence of that supreme mind, his attributes, the manner of his existence, the very nature of his duration, these and every particular which regards so divine a being are mysterious to men. Finite, weak, and blind creatures, we ought to humble ourselves in his august presence, and, conscious of our frailties, adore in silence his infinite perfections which eye hath not seen, ear hath not heard, neither hath it entered into the heart of man to conceive. They are covered in a deep cloud from human curiosity. It is profaneness to attempt penetrating through these sacred obscurities, and, next to the impiety of denying his existence, is the temerity of prying into his nature and essence, decrees and attributes. Demia is, in short, arguing from Christian dogma here. He is basically taking the hard line of the church that to try and understand God in any real sense, especially using the tools of rationality and science, is basically nothing short of blasphemy. Um, Demia is saying that, like, in the grand scheme of sins against God, yes, the first one is to believe that he doesn't exist, but the second one, which is not very far removed, is inquiring into the mysteries that we have no business, like, talking about. Um, so his, what Demia is stressing here is we all agree that God exists, which apparently includes even Philo, although we'll get to that. Um, Philo is not yet showing his hand as far as that's concerned, and Cleanthes knows that he's not showing his hand. Like, there are a couple times that Cleanthes is like, do you really think he's on your side, Demia? Because I think he's going to surprise you, and Philo will. Um, 
But you'll notice that Demia is basically arguing here that, like, the nature of God is the central question. Everybody agrees that God exists in some capacity, like, even as the giant question mark, the placeholder name that Aquinas suggests when he says that the prime mover is God or the creator of the universe is God. And that is the thing that, like, everybody sort of points to. Um, the basic tenet of, like, what God actually is, is the fact that he created the world. Um... All three of these men agree on this point as well. Um, but Demia is arguing not from science, not from rationality, not from philosophy, but from typical Christian principles. Like he's literally quoting the Bible there when he says, the eye hath not seen, um, the ear hath not heard. Um, he is basically saying like, we have been told by religious authority, by religious teaching that God is beyond our comprehension, not something for us to know. Therefore, it would be beyond us to try and investigate this question. The nature is the issue, but the nature is not to be inquired into. Um, but Cleanthes is very much arguing against that. Um, so Cleanthes is the one who actually presents the sort of central case that we are going to be running around with in this text. The probably like the central argument that both Philo and Demia are going to confront and sort of like criticize for most of this text. Um, and this is super important. So, like, if you haven't opened your books at this point, now is the time. If you look on page 934 at the top of the second column, Cleanthes' argument here is as straightforward a presentation as we're going to get. Not to lose any time in circumlocutions, said Cleanthes, addressing himself to Demia, much less in replying to the pious declamations of Philo, I shall briefly explain how I conceive this matter. Look round the world. Contemplate the whole and every part of it. You will find it to be nothing but one great machine, subdivided into an infinite number of lesser machines, which again admit of subdivisions to a degree beyond what human senses and faculties can trace and explain. All these various machines, and even their most minute parts, are adjusted to each other with an accuracy which ravishes into admiration all men who have ever contemplated them. The curious adapting of means to ends throughout all natures resembles exactly, though it much exceeds, the productions of human contrivance, of human design, thought, wisdom, and intelligence. Since, therefore, the effects resemble each other, we are led to infer by all the rules of analogy that the causes also resemble, and that the author of nature is somewhat similar to the mind of man, though possessed of much larger faculties proportioned to the grandeur of the work which he has executed. By this argument a posteriori, and by this argument alone, do we prove at once the existence of a deity and his similarity to human mind and intelligence. Now let's take this apart a bit. Um, the basic argument that Cleanthes is presenting here is the world is like a machine. He stresses that the world is complex. It has all of these different moving parts on both the macro level and on the micro level. Investigate like a desert and you will find multiple different organisms interacting with each other in like perfect interlocking ways that cause and bring about the survival and the endurance of all of the organisms involved. 
birds with long beaks eat from cactuses with long needles. The cactuses with long needle needles stave off the animals that would like try and eat them, but the animals can catch the birds and therefore you have this ecosystem. But examine even closer and you find this process also at work in the cactus, the bird, and the animal itself. Each one of them designed carefully where each of its moving parts all interact in this beautiful, harmonious way. Cleanthes argues that, that complexity of this profound and perfect interlocking way can only be compared to a machine in our experience. The pieces of the desert and the pieces of the animal and the pieces of the animal's organs themselves all operate as harmoniously as a pocket watch. And this is basically like a modification or even a like prefiguring of the pocket watch argument that I've presented earlier in the semester. Um, Hume is basically saying the world is immensely complex, but that all of the pieces fit together, interlock, and make for this harmonious functional world. It is like a machine, in short. And since the world is like a machine, we can basically understand that the creation of the world in some way resembles the creation of machines. The origin, the cause of the world, must resemble the origin or cause of, say, a pocket watch or a motor car or a steamship, however you want to see it. Um, the ingenuity that went into the devising of a machine is apparent as well in the way that our human bodies work, in the way that trees grow, in the way that ecosystems function, in the way that the atmosphere protects us from, you know, dangerous objects in, the, in space at large. Um, in short, all of these pieces work together like a machine, therefore the world is like a machine, therefore the world was likely cre created by someone with intelligence the way that machines are created through our design and intelligence. Cleanthes is basically making a case for intelligent design. Um, not necessarily an intelligent design informed by Christianity specifically. You'll notice that for the most part, all of our characters, um, with the exception of Demia and only sometimes, are arguing from a sort of like secular theism. Um, this is the 18th century, after all. Deism is very much in vogue at this point. Um, a sort of Christianity minus the Bible. Um, like, God exists and created the world, and then he just kind of, like, leaves it alone and lets us figure it out. Um, Cleanthes is very much arguing for something comparable to this. He is saying that God is the watchmaker, that he's wound up the world, and then he left it, and we go along ticking under our own steam. Um, it is no longer something that he bit, like busies himself with. Um, so this is his central argument. The world is complex like a machine. Machines have designers. Designers have intelligence. That's the principle they use to design machines. Thus, the world must also have a designer with intelligence, and that must be the principle by which the designer designed the world. Thus, God is intelligent. God has mind. Um, this is the basic argument that Cleanthes is presenting. What do we know of God's nature? We know that God's intelligence is at least in some capacity similar to our own. And you'll notice Cleanthes does put a lot of caveats in here. 
Um, he stresses that it is proportioned to the grandeur of the work, that God possesses a much larger faculties. Um, but he stresses that within the context of God's similarity to human beings. But you should also remember from our discussion of both the Euthyphro and of argument structures before that, that this is absolutely an example of analogical reasoning. Um, this is an analogy, a comparison argument. And Cleanthes isn't trying to hide this either. Like, Cleanthes knows exactly that that is what he is doing. Um, he stresses that it is analogy. Um, since, therefore, the effects resemble each other, we are led to infer by all the rules of analogy that the causes also resemble. Um, like, he is not hiding it. He is not going for an a priori argument. Um, he is stressing that he is looking at the world he is seeing what the world is like and concluding something about the maker of the world by the effects which are present to us. And in this, he's doing something very similar to Aquinas, although he's going a step beyond what Aquinas would comfortably do. Um, Aquinas would have stopped at, therefore God exists, period. Like, there must have been something to create the world. Um, Cleanthes, by contrast, is saying that God is not just something that exists, but an intelligent being, intelligent after the manner, analogically, as of human beings. And while this is something that Aquinas will ultimately conclude, it's something that takes him a lot longer to get to. Um, again, like, we have, for Aquinas, this understanding of analogical, like, language in addition to analogical reasoning. Um, so Hume is saying, you know, on some level, the mind of God is similar to the mind of man. For Aquinas, he would basically say that, like, we call whatever it is that makes God do stuff mind, because we have an imperfect understanding of what God is like, but it is at least in some way similar to the mind that we have. Um, and I suspect that Hume actually knows this. Like, Hume is very careful about the way that he uses his language here and in his other works. Um, he, too, has a keen eye for noticing equivocations and making distinctions where previously none existed. Um, so I suspect that when he says mind here and intelligence here, he has a fairly broad notion of what that might include. Um, something that Philo also kind of picks up on. Uh, but you'll notice that the reaction to Cleanthes' argument here is nothing but negative. Um, Demia is absolutely outraged. I shall be so free, Cleanthes said Demia, as to tell you that from the beginning I could not approve of your conclusion concerning the similarity of the deity to men. Still less can I approve of the mediums by which you endeavor to establish it. What? No demonstration of the being of God? No abstract arguments? No proofs a priori? Are these which have hitherto been so much insisted on by philosophers all fallacy? All sophism? Can we reach no further in this subject than experience and probability? I will say not that this is betraying the cause of a deity, but surely by this affected candor you give advantages to atheists which they never could obtain by the mere dint of argument and reasoning. Remember, Demi is from the old school. He is a hardcore rationalist. He is looking for 100% guaranteed proofs, arguments a priori, before experience, arguments that are 100% guaranteed, deductive reasoning, where Cleanthes is very obviously and very, very happily doing inductive reasoning through his analogical argument. Demia is frustrated that Cleanthes won't commit to something harder. 
in short. Cleanthes is saying, like, you are entrusting all of, like, God's reality to just a probability, an analogy, a comparison. That's it. And a comparison based not on rationality, but a comparison based on your experience. Like, what nonsense is this? And Philo follows up in much the same way, though, again, he's careful about it. What I chiefly scruple in this subject, said Philo, is not so much that all religious ex arguments are by Cleanthes reduced to experience, as that they appear not to be even the most certain and irrefragable of that inferior kind. That a stone wall, that a stone will fall, that fire will burn, that the earth has solidity, we have observed a thousand and a thousand times. And when any new instance of this nature is presented, we draw without hesitation the accustomed inference. The exact similarity of the cases gives us a perfect assurance of a similar event, and a stronger evidence is never desired nor sought after. But wherever you depart, in the least, from the similarity of the cases, you diminish proportionably the evidence, and may at last bring it to a very weak analogy, which is confessedly liable to error and uncertainty. After having experienced the circulation of the blood in human creatures, we make no doubt that it takes place in Titius and Mavius, but from its circulation in frogs and fishes, it is only a presumption though a strong one, from analogy that it takes place in men and other animals. The analogical reasoning is much weaker when we infer the circulation of the sap in vegetables from our experience that the blood circulates in animals, and those who hastily follow that imperfect analogy are found, by more accurate experiments, to have been mistaken. In short, Philo is pointing out the weakness in this analogy. Like, Philo doesn't have a problem with the fact that Cleanthes is taking his argument from experience. Like, Demia is mortified that Cleanthes is taking his argument from experience. Why not use arguments a priori? They're stronger and better, Demia is arguing. Philo doesn't have faith in arguments a priori, or at least he certainly hasn't revealed any. Um, instead, he's like, all right, well, you made, a, you made an empirical argument, but it's a crap empirical argument. Your analogy is incredibly weak. Comparing the machinery of human beings to the immense complexity of the world is a process far beyond anything that we understand or experience. And this is a key idea for Hume. Um, in his inquiry concerning understanding, he makes a very similar point, which is very much an operation here. Um, namely, there he argues that literally all scientific inquiry altogether is basically a series of these analogical arguments. Like, there is no scientific proof that does not rely on analogy and inductive reason. That's just the way that science works. Um, and that's not a bad thing for Philo. Um, so you'll notice, like, later on page 937, Philo sort of draws out the very language that Hume uses in his inquiry concerning human understanding. Um, he says, Can you blame me, Cleanthes, if, you, if I here imitate the prudent reserve of Simonides, who, according to the noted story, being asked by Hiero what God was, desired a day to think of it, and then two days more, and after that manner continually prolonged the term without ever bringing in his definition or description? In short, doesn't it make more sense to just keep postponing your answer when you have to admit that you don't know what you're talking about? Um, could you even blame me if I had answered at first that I did not know 
and was sensible that the subject lay vastly beyond the reach of my faculties. You might cry out skeptic and railer as much as you pleased, but having found in so many other subjects much more familiar the imperfections and even contradictions of human reason, I never should expect any success from its feeble conjectures in a subject so sublime and so remote from the sphere of our observation. When two species of objects have always been observed to be conjoined together, I can infer by custom the existence of one whenever I see the existence of the other, and this I call an argument from experience. But how this argument can have place when the objects, in, as in the present case, are single, individual, without parallel or specific resemblance, may be difficult to explain. What Hume is saying here through Philo, um, and where he says what he says elsewhere is that all scientific argument, all arguments from experience, all natural philosophy, all reasoning regarding the world at large that we have sensed and understood through our senses, all of that depends on analogy. Um, all scientific arguments are based entirely on the assumption that our experience is going to remain the same. Um, and this is fairly easy to observe. Like, I've got this great little, like, matchbox car hanging out on my desk, um, which I use in this example because it makes a great sound when it hits the floor. Um, so if I hold my matchbox car up above the carpet like this, and then I drop it, you know what's going to happen. It's going to hit the floor. Um, you know that not just because of like the law of gravity, but because over and over and over and over again, you can watch it happen. I drop the car, it hits the floor. Um, the experience remains consistent. And we have this understanding of the law of gravity, not through some like abstruse detection. Nobody ever sees gravity at work. Like if you want, if you pick up something off your own desk right now and drop it to the floor, I defy you to see the power of gravity pulling it down. Um, instead, all that you are observing is the fact that holding a thing above the ground and then releasing it causes it to hit the ground. That's literally all there is to it and you can't get any more from it cause and effect is something not observed therefore cause and effect is something inferred you see object or you see state of affairs a accompanied by state of affairs b you see it a hundred times a thousand times ten thousand times and you assume a causal connection a causes b if every time I hold the car above the floor and then release it, it drops, then I can assume that there is some law, some causality at play here. And science works the same way. As he says in the inquiry concerning understanding, like we assume that the sun is going to rise tomorrow because it has risen every day in the past. It rose yesterday, it rose the day before yesterday, it rose the day before that, and the day before that, and the day before that, on and on and on, thousands of years into the past, all the way back to the origin of recorded history. When you have seen the same experience that frequently for that long, you assume a causal connection. But notice that Hume is not saying that it must be the case. That's the important distinction here. It is not reason that causes us to believe this. It is custom. It is pure, repeated coincidences. To put it another way, imagine that I have a quarter. And I'm sitting here flipping my quarter over and over and over again. 
And as we all know, flipping a coin, like if I say, what is the chances that it will come up heads? We all know it's a 50-50 shot or something pretty close to it. Like maybe it's a little weighted one way or the other. Maybe it's not exactly 50%. At the end of the day, it's close enough to 50-50 that we can reliably flip it a whole bunch of times and end up with like 50% heads and 50% tails. But let's imagine instead that I flip the coin and it comes up heads. And I say, okay, what are the odds that it comes up heads the next time? And you say, naturally, it's still 50%. The situation has not changed. The coin still will flip, you know, equally heads or tails. Either one is equally likely. So I flip the coin again, and it comes up heads. And I say, what are the odds that it comes up heads again? And you say, 50-50, it hasn't changed. So I flip it five more times, and five more times it comes up heads. And I say, what are the odds that it comes up heads next time? And you say 50-50. It still hasn't changed. The rules are still in place. But I flip it 10 times, 100 times, 1,000 times, and it keeps coming up heads. Obviously, at some point, you're going to check out the coin. You're going to be like, are you sure that that's, a tr that's not a trick coin or it, that it's weighted? Or maybe I've like developed some incredible technique at flipping heads consistently. Eventually, you start to assume that it's going to keep coming up heads. Like, your brain can tell you that it's 50-50 all you want. Once you have seen this happen this frequently, you are going to assume a scientific law. You are going to assume that it's always going to come up heads, even if it's still 50-50 at the end of the day. But what I want to stress is that if, if this is the case, if all of science is based on pure observation and experience, repeated coincidences of events. A, caught, A is connected to B over and 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 over again. What's to say that the sun coming up in the morning isn't just us on a 10,000 year hot streak? Who's to say that the laws that bound the world yesterday will continue until tomorrow? It is purely analogy, purely inductive reasoning, purely probability that causes science to function. The laws of gravity are a matter of probability, a good probability, a probability we've observed so many times at this point that we're almost guaranteed to see the same things happen over and over and over again. The sun rising in the morning, same thing. We've seen it so many times that the probability is just so high, scientific evidence is so vast that it speaks to near certainty, but never certainty, never 100% certainty. There is always the chances that the rules go haywire or that something else changes beyond our knowledge or that the rule we thought in place wasn't a rule at all, but was just a hot streak. Maybe there's a 50% chance that the sun rises in the morning and we've just gotten really friggin' lucky over the past 10,000 years. Who knows? The trick is the strength of that analogy, as always, depends upon the strength of the similarity. The similarity between human and human when discussing the circulation of blood is near identical. Like there's not nearly enough separating me from you to cause scientists to think that there's blood circulating in my veins but not in yours. Um, there are significant differences between me and say a dog or a cat or a frog or a horse. Enough differences that a scientist who didn't know any better might give pause. If you said, does blood circulate in the veins of a horse the way that it circulates in the veins of a man? 
But naturally, they would kind of open the horse, they would see how exactly the circulatory system worked there, and upon discovering that they also have circulatory systems, would argue that maybe all animals of any kind have circulatory systems, or perhaps all animals within a certain degree of resemblance, i.e. they're all part of the same genus, they're all part of the same species. Um, whatever the similarity or the, le the level of similarity, the importance is the further you get from the original test case, the human being or the animal, the less likely the same rules apply. And as Philo emphasizes, if you try and understand the movement of sap in a tree according to the circulatory system, you are going to come up very wrong. It is too far away from our experience of circulatory systems in animals. Um, it is a different system at play. Therefore, when it comes to God and the creation of the universe, as compared with the creation of mere machines, we are now way out of our depth, like way farther than the limits of good analogical reasoning are concerned. Like if there is a 50% chance or a 50% likeness between the universe and you know my pocket watch, that's generous. Like, it is way, way bigger, way, way more impressive, way, way different, and therefore the analogy is very, very weak, and the argument that Cleanthes is making is likewise very, very weak. That's what Philo is stressing here. First of all, that all science is in fact based on these similarities, these analogies. Experience repeated over and over and over again as the single fundamental guide of all of our knowledge. And second, that that is the only way that we can get to knowledge. Rationality alone, a priori reasoning, is not a thing for Hume. Uh, there is no merit in the arguments of Descartes arguing that God exists because I have this idea that God exists, or this, these a priori arguments like what Anselm suggests where God's essence requires that he exist. None of that holds any water for him. Only scientific arguments, only arguments based on analogy to our own experience as we have it now. But third, this particular argument, this comparison of God to humans, the world to our tiny little like pocket watches and fiddly devices, is just an order of magnitude upon an order of magnitude too different for us to make any rational observations about this. Um, as Philo puts it, um, what peculiar privilege has this little agitation of the brain which we call thought that we must thus make it the model of the whole universe? Um, notice on page 937, top of the first paragraph, or top of the first column, so far from admitting that the operations of a part can afford us any just conclusion concerning the origin of the whole, I will not allow any one part to form a rule for another part if the latter be very remote from the former. Is there any reasonable ground to conclude that the inhabitants of other planets possess thought, intelligence, reason, or anything similar to these faculties in men? When nature has so extremely diversified her manner of operation in this small globe, can we imagine that she incessantly copies herself throughout so immense a universe? And if thought, as we well may well suppose be confined merely to this narrower corner and has even there so limited a sphere of action with what propriety can we assign it for the original cause of all things the narrow views of a peasant who makes his domestic economy the rule for the government of kingdoms is in comparison a pardonable sophism 
In short, all we know is our own tiny little faculty of rationality. And it's not even that prevalent in our own little corner of the universe. Like we human beings are basically the only creatures we know that have rationality and intelligence, at least in the way that we describe it. Who is to say that other planets do not have some other productive capacity besides rationality? Maybe they have the instinct of bees, or maybe they have some propagative quality that allows them to give birth to engines, or who knows? Um, all of this uh, presumption that the world is like a machine and thus a machine being created by intelligence infers that the world is created by intelligence is absolutely huge anthropomorphism, as Demille will call it. It is a reduction of God to human-like qualities. Or alternatively, it is a huge presumption on our part that the stuff that lets us build stuff is also the, the stuff that lets us everyone build stuff. Like, all species of, you know, creative beings are somehow endowed with the same power of intelligence and rationality that we are. Um, it is a huge assumption. A wild, unwarranted assumption. Um, now, Cleanthes does defend himself. Um, on page 939 in part 3, you'll see that he is arguing, like, for his in his own defense. Arguing that, first... Um, imagine that a voice spoke to all nations in their own language simultaneously and was heard by everyone, um, it would be really difficult to argue um, that this was not motivated by some kind of intelligence similar or comparable to our own. Um, likewise, he suggests that if we imagine that, like, books propagated according to, like, reproduction, like, if all the books on my shelves occasionally, like, have sex and then produce, like, other books um, that have similarities to the books that were initial, initially in place, um, and that, like, picking a random book off the shelf, we would assume that it was written by an intelligent person when, in fact, it was the product of pure natural, like, concupiscence. Um, this is a less wild analogy than to say that um, the world was, cre was not created by intelligence. Um, like, as he puts it, um, suppose therefore that you enter into your library thus peopled by natural volumes containing the most refined reason and most exquisite beauty, could you possibly open one of them and doubt that its original cause bore the strongest analogy to mind and intelligence? When it reasons and discourses, when it expostulates, argues, and enforces its views and topics, when it applies sometimes to the pure intellect, sometimes to the affections, when it collects, disposes, and adorns every consideration suited to the subject, could you persist in asserting that all this, at the bottom, had really no meaning, and that the first formation of this volume in the loins of its original parent proceeded not from thought and design? If the Iliad and the Odyssey give birth to the Aeneid, you will still have the intelligence of the Iliad and the Odyssey at the end of the day. It is still apparent. It is still irreducible. Sure, I may be the product not of God's direct hand, but of my parents, but my parents still operate in a way that is clearly rationally organized, and therefore we must infer rationality of some kind. And the complexity, the rational organization of any human being, my parents or otherwise, is way more complicated than the amount of, like, intelligence apparent in a book. Um... It would be way easier to write the whole complete works of Shakespeare than it would be to create a human being from nothing, from the ground up, with all of the interlocking parts that cause the human body to work. Therefore, 
we must conclude that a greater intelligence is at work here, but an intelligence nonetheless. Um, so the entirety of part three is largely devoted to Cleanthes defending himself. Like, Demia pokes in and then starts arguing against it. Um, but importantly, like, the one major argument that Demia presents is that all of Cleanthes's defenses, his argument that, like, a voice from the sky or the books propagating one another, all have to do with language and are therefore linguistic. Um, they all have a common species, something that is not common to the world at large. We do not see the language of God written on the mountains and the stars. Um, there is no obvious connection between the world and our way of thought in the way that there would be in a book or in speech generally. Um, that's just not the way it works. Like if we dug up a mountain and found written on there in plain written English, like this was made by God, um, then yes, we would have pretty good reason to contend that like God is similar to us um, if we had no other way of explaining this particular phenomenon. Um, but that's not what the world looks like. That's not how the, like, the complexity of the world manifests. It's not linguistic. It's not comparable to our own. Um, and Philo like runs with this. Um, for Philo, he is stressing that like the argument could just as well be some natural principle in nature. Um, but we'll get to that. What's important from Demia's perspective is that logic and rationality and thought and intelligence are themselves very fallible and thus very far removed from God. Um, so if you look on page 941, the top of the first uh, column there, all the sentiments of the human mind, gratitude, resentment, love, friendship, approbation, blame, pity, emulation, envy, have a plain reference to the state and situation of man and are calculated for preserving the existence and promoting the activity of such a being in such circumstances. It seems therefore unreasonable to transfer such sentiments to a supreme existence or to suppose him actuated by them. And the phenomena besides of the universe will not support us in such a theory. All our ideas derived from the senses are confessedly false and elusive and cannot therefore be supposed to have place in a supreme intelligence. And as the ideas of internal sentiment added to those of the external senses compose the whole furniture of human understanding, we may conclude that none of the materials of thought are in any respect similar in the human and in the divine intelligence. Now as to the manner of them, or the manner of thinking, how can we make any comparison between them or suppose them anywise resembling? Our thought is fluctuating, uncertain, fleeting, successive, and compounded. And were we to remove these circumstances, we absolutely annihilate its essence. And it would in such a case be an abuse of terms to apply to it the name of thought or reason. In short, he's making the sort of Cartesian a priori argument. He is saying... God, as some sort of eternal, infinite, changeless being, can't possibly have the same sort of thought and intelligence that we have. Because our thought and intelligence is the product of composition, of sensation on the one hand, and these successive fleeting ideas on the other, which are themselves like imperfect and frequently like mistaken or illusory, flawed and wrong. Demia, as usual, is reaching to his pre-existing understanding of who God is to explain why the distance between God and Cleanthes' understanding of God must be in place. 
God is not changeable, and therefore, since human thought is a fundamentally changeable process, there is no comparison to be made between human thought and divine intelligence, if such a thing can be said to exist. But this riles Cleanthes, um, and he and Demia really start throwing down at this point. Um, so you'll note that um, like Demia sort of argues that all of this I this suggestion this like philosophical suggestion that God is you know thinking the same way that humans thinking that he is subject to the vicissitudes of thought the way that humans are um, this is obviously very wrong and Cleanthes returns by saying well then what do you mean by God here. Um, on page 942, the top full paragraph, I can readily allow, said Cleanthes, that those who maintain the perfect simplicity of the supreme being to the extent in which you have explained it are complete mystics and chargeable with all the consequences which I have drawn from their opinion. They are, in a word, atheists without knowing it. For though it be allowed that the deity possesses attributes of which we have no com comprehension, yet ought we never to ascribe to him any attributes which are absolutely incompatible with that intelligent nature essential to him. A mind whose acts and sentiments and ideas are not distinct and successive, one that is wholly simple and totally immutable, is a mind which has no thought, no reason, no will, no sentiment, no love, no hatred, or in a word, is no mind at all. It is an abuse of terms to give it that appellation, and we may as well speak of limited extension without figure, or of number without composition. Them's fightin' words. Um, Demia is basically arguing what we saw from Aquinas and from other medieval philosophers before. He is claiming divine simplicity. Um, his comeback to Cleanthes' argument that God is possessed of intelligence is that intelligence does not fit with the notion of divine simplicity. Intelligence, in the sense that we usually mean it, requires composition, like succession, change, something that God, as a simple being, should not possess. But Cleanthes' comeback is that the simplicity of God is a bullshit argument. It is the argument of mystics who are essentially atheists. To say that God has nothing in common with human beings, that he is just the simplicity that we cannot understand or comprehend, is basically to write God off entirely. It is an inability, a professed rejection of any attempt to understand or describe God. Um, and in short, Demia is then not a philosopher, not a theologian, but a mystic, reaching at words that have no meaning, and an atheist because the, those words have no substance to them. To argue that God is simple is essentially the same as to argue that God does not exist, as far as Cleanthes is concerned. And this offends Philo as well, although offends might not be quite the right word. Um, so Philo responds, Pray consider whom you are at present inveighing against. You are honoring with the appellation of atheist all the sound orthodox divines, almost, who have treated of this subject, and you will at last be yourself found, according to your own reckoning, the only sound theist in the world. In short, like, Cleanthes, if you're seriously going to throw out the divine simplicity argument, throw out mysticism, and basically say that the only way to be a theist is to have this rational perspective, well, you're going to be the only theist left. Um, 
Philo is basically saying, like, there's nothing wrong with Demia's argument here, or at least there's nothing wrong from Philo's perspective. Cleanthes is demanding from Demia an association with empiricism that Demia is right to reject, in Philo's opinion. Again, remember, Philo is arguing that the analogy that Cleanthes relies upon is really weak. And for that matter, since all knowledge is based on these analogies, since all scientific awareness is analogical in its structure, it is only based on the experience that we already have, and we have no experience of God, what Philo is basically saying is, like, hey, you know, your bullshit analogical argument is just as good as Demia's bullshit a priori argument. Like, furthermore, if you're really going to go all, all out and say that, like, anyone who doesn't believe in an, in an a posteriori empirical argument for the existence of God is an atheist, well, you know, what are you really saying here besides you're separating yourself from all of these other people? Like, what even is a theist at this point? What, is, what are you even trying to, to present here? Um, Philo and Demia are still, at this point, allied. They are still presenting what is basically the same case, that God is very distant from what we are like. Whereas Cleanthes is trying to collapse it, say that God is very similar to what we are. Um, and Demia and Philo both point out that just as much as like he can go ahead and call uh, Demia a mystic, so Philo and Demia can turn around and call him an anthropomorphite. Um, a person who turns God into a human being. Um, and there is nothing, like, there is nothing worse about being an anthropomorphite than there is about being a mystic. Both have the same warped view of God, in a sense. Um, and at the very least, the mystic, the atheist as Demia is an atheist, is at the very least respecting the distance between the knowledge that we have and what we need to know in order to figure out who God is. Um, it is presumptuous to be making these arguments in short. That is what both Philo and Demia are arguing. And this assumption that the world is like a machine is a huge overextension of the rational faculties in both of their opinions. Um, this analogy is too weak to bear any significance or to present any actual conclusions. Um, you've got to do better than this, in short. Um, but notice how this sort of alliance between Philo and Demia is really set up to fail. Um, notice that Demia is arguing all the time from the pre-established tradition of Christianity where Philo is always arguing from the basic tenets of how reason itself works. For Demia, the limits of reason are overcome by the, by the revelations of the Bible and other religious texts. For Philo, it's unclear whether he even accepts those revelations. He hasn't spoken a word about the Bible or about like the Christian tradition to this to this point. His argument has been 100% concerned with how does reason work? What are the limits of that reason? And this is what he is stressing here. This is what skepticism seems to mean to Philo. Um, it is not rejecting the truth of one's senses because can we trust them they so frequently deceive us but rather it is from the perspective of 
given the limits of how experience and scientific inquiry work, given the fact that all of our knowledge depends on these analogies to our past experiences, that the only knowledge we can truly claim to have through custom is through these repeated experiences over and over and over again, the sun rising over and over and over again, the car falling over and over and over again, um, you know, plants and animals behaving the same way over and over and over again, and thus we come to concrete conclusions. In any case where we are forced to abandon knowledge that we have gained through repeated experience, as in the case of who created the world, we are already way out of our realm of expertise. We cannot weigh in at all at this point. And Philo will totally drive this home in the next several sections. Um, he will absolutely stress the absurdity that you can reach if you rely on this analogical argument in a situation where you have so little material to go on. Um, but this does not make him necessarily an ally of Demia, because Demia believes that he does have concrete knowledge. He stresses at the very beginning of the text when they're talking about how Pamphilus has been trained um, that all of his knowledge is based on a greater truth than like empirical understanding. Cleanthes is here kind of sort of threading this needle. He is saying there is a place for science, for rationality within the realm of religion. We can learn about God through experience. And the two arguments that he is presented with are Demia saying that we need to have our religion untainted by experience. And on the other hand, Philo saying that that's bad experience that you're working with. Philo was emphasizing the sanctity of science. Demia is emphasizing the sanctity of religion. The day is going to come when those two ideas are no longer compatible, although that day has not come yet. Um, and keep this in mind, like one of the major questions for the paper, which I assume that you were working on at this point because the deadline is drawing much closer. And in fact, next week I will be cutting the lecture a bit short so you can instead focus on the lectures regarding um, writing the paper and getting uh, proper research and stuff. Um, notice that like one of the questions that you have to ask is what is the most reliable source of information about like the world. Is it revelation? Is it reason? Is it experience? One of the other questions is, does religion have to be based on faith alone? Um, for both of these questions, Hume has a strong position to consider here. Hume is basically saying that empiricist or empiricism, the arguments from experience, are the only that we have. Um, that we may be able to trust revelation by faith alone, we maybe we cannot trust reason because it doesn't actually get us anywhere, but instead all of the practical knowledge that we have about the world comes from experience alone. Likewise, Hume is going to be one of the major thinkers who argues that faith and science do not have truck together. Um, he is one of those thinkers who is going to set in motion the idea that science and religion are opposed to one another rather than allied to one another. Like even Descartes is saying that science is compatible with faith, that the findings of Galileo and Copernicus do not overturn the truths of religion, um, that in fact the priests and you know the Catholic Church need to reevaluate what they've assumed and see exactly what their you know senses are telling them um, to not you know give in to their judgment and make these wild assumptions about the world. Um, Hume 
isn't going to make that claim at the end of the day, as we will see. Um, Hume is going to suggest that perhaps Christianity is best left to faith alone, that science would do better without it, and Christianity might do better without science as well. Um, but we'll talk about that more in the coming weeks.